Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I really thought we'd evolved out of thinking that the idea that there are communities that are inherently predisposed to violence. Even as you say that, you should be hearing yourself and going, that sounds so stupid. (laughs) That sounds absolutely ridiculous. The idea that there would be people who are somehow inherently more violent. Where, what logic is that based on? When comedian Nish Kumar was on BBC Question Time, him and Daily Mail columnist Melanie Phillips had a little bit of an argument over stop and search powers. Now, as you can imagine, it pricked my ears. So we got in contact with Nish and we got him on the show. So let's have a conversation about stop and search, race and the police. There's a lot to talk about on this one. So thank you so much, Nish, for joining us. This is Stop and Search on Scuba's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Elite UK. And here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where travels seldom straight. Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. And as I said, we're joined by Nish Kumar. I couldn't be more excited. So before we start that. There's two shout-outs I want to give because we're going to be talking about a lot of facts and figures as well and reports within this. There's, Trust me, there's some entertaining stuff as well. It's not all boring facts and figures. But we need to back up our arguments. So, two organisations, and if you're listening on your cast app, they'll be scrolling underneath as we speak, so you can go and click on them or just do an old-fashioned Google. Firstly, go to Release Drugs. They do a lot of work on these subjects that we're going to be speaking about. Uh, you would have heard Neve Eastwood, the executive director, on previous episodes. But also go to Stopwatch UK, who are unparalleled on the subjects that we're going to be talking about. They are an amazing organisation that hopefully we're going to be having on the show fairly soon because we need to be talking about Stop and Search a whole lot more. And we will be. So before we get into this episode with Nish Kumar, make sure you follow us on ukleap.org on our Facebook at UK Leap on our Twitter, UK Leap on Instagram, and our website is at ukleap.org. So all the things we discussed in this episode with Nish are very, very current, very relevant, and probably, and unfortunately, will be for some time. So thanks so much, Nish, for helping us out on our work. It really makes a difference when we get a public figure like yours championing this issue. So let's get on with this. This is Nish Kumar on Stop and Search. Great. Nice. Lovely. Oh, I might start then. Oh, yeah, let's do it. So, so I'm 
can't believe I'm joined by Nish Kumar. It's just, <laughs> it's just so amazing for so many reasons. And the reason that I, I, I fully admit I took a punt on, on, on seeing if you wanted to come on this show because you was on Question Time yeah. with Melanie Phillips. Yes. And <laughs> the issue that came up, which certainly flagged up for me, was the issue of stop and search. Yeah. Um, you, can, can you explain the position that you took on, on that issue and on Question Time? Uh, I felt, well, look, I, I have a lot of feelings about that particular evening and I think in the you know I have a lot of regrets about the way that I sort of handled it I think in the moment but anyway there was there was a certain emotion that you can't get around if you're my age and you're a person of colour living in this country and you know the Stephen Lawrence case was such a um, jarring moment for me because I, I mean I was a kid but I grew up very near where it all went down. And so I think, you know, the idea that the there was some action that was taken, any action that was taken after that was really important to me because it, you know, it's, you felt a real connection to what happened there. And on the particular evening that you're talking about with question time, there was a question that was asked about knife crime. And uh, Melanie Phillips took a very strong position that the McPherson report had undermined the police and that we needed to readopt stop and search and uh, sort of doubly disappointingly uh, the conservative mp james cleverly supported her view uh, or, or at the very least seemed to sort of he sort of co-signed that view i got very upset <laughs> i think it's he's fair to say i got very upset um and um and you know perhaps correctly melanie phillips took me to task for not having read the mcpherson report now in my defense I was very young when the McPherson report was released. Um, but um, she's probably right. I probably should have read that report. Uh, I have now read that report. And um, it does show the police were institutionally racist. It, it absolutely does. And I completely stand by the point that I was making that in terms of when we're talking about knife crime, if you look at what Karen McCluskey was able to achieve in Glasgow with essentially the treatment of knife crime as being a public health rather than a criminal issue. Um, I think there are much more constructive solutions rather than going back to the 1980s. That, that's my feeling about it. That was my feeling about it at the time and that continues to be my feeling about it now. The thing is, though, is that because that is always the first thing that gets brought up is, have you read the report? Have you read mm. the report? And it's... As you'd imagine, a heavy report. I've had to read it. Mm. But it is an older report. Mm -hmm. But we've had one since that completely demonstrate this in numbers. Like, we work closely with an organisation called Release. One of their reports, which I, I did think I had any hard copy because I wanted to bring it for you, was that we know that the stop and search policies alone, that, and this was a few years ago, and I think the numbers have actually got worse, is that if you're a black person in London, you're 6.3 times more likely to be stopped and searched than a white person. Yeah. And if you're an Asian person, you're two times, two and a half times more likely to be stopped and searched. Sure. So we know that this is, a, 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 for want of a better word, a racist policy. Yeah. So to just come up with that, that argument of, have you read the report and then dismiss anything after that? Yeah. Surely that's, it's not doing this, the, any justice to the issue because you, as someone that comes from an ethnic background, is going to have an anecdotal perspective of this, sure. Yeah, sure. And uh, have you had that in, in your life? No, I mean, I've never had a stop and search issue. I've never had an issue with the police. My my issue with uh, racial profiling uh, is solely 
related to my experience of airport security and that sort of constant nightmare. I mean, you know, because of my appearance and because of the age that I am, um, you know, the sort of post 9-11 experience of being a brown man traveling through airport security is that's a kind of that's a constant source of frustration for me. And so that's where that's where my experience of racial profiling comes from. And, you know, it's the most frustrating thing when you do a transit flight, because I do, you know, I do gigs in Australia and New Zealand. And it's there's a point where you're like, I just wish someone could stamp not a terrorist on my forehead because the having to be pulled out of queues in three on the same flight. <laughs> it's incredibly is incredibly frustrating. And that's my kind of principal experience of that is, you know, having to kind of negotiate that. And then, you know, then, oh God, the last time I, the last time I flew out of Heathrow, it was a really unpleasant experience because, you know, I was sort of pulled out of a queue, which is fine, which is not fine, but I'm used to. And then I was, I thought I was following instructions that had been given to me and a person working at the security desk shouted sorry can you not speak english to me like at the kind of checking desk and i was like oh, i can't speak english you've just been incredibly rude to me <laughs> um and so yeah it's it's a constant source of but that, that level of disharmony say. you certainly see we, we certainly see it on the streets now is that even if the numbers aren't supported which they are which i've just said the you know, the report is uh, the numbers in black and white yeah um and also going back to the McPherson report even if the numbers don't stack up and the anecdotal evidence supports that people are feeling mm. disenfranchised because of what's going on with police powers and that surely that counts for something in itself surely we need to be listening to the voices that's turning around saying actually we feel like we're being hard done by there do, do you think we put enough emphasis on that i i mean i don't think we put enough i i just think that there aren't there aren't enough platforms for those kind of voices in the media conversation. I mean, that's partly one of the reasons. When you do a programme like Question Time and you come from my background, which is a comedian, you, you sort of wonder what the purpose is of having you on those shows. And it, as somebody of a minority ethnic background, if I don't raise those kind of issues, there is no point in me being on those shows. You know, I see my role as being a mouthpiece for the opinions of smarter people who aren't invited onto those programs. And so that was that's a lot of what I'm doing in those kind of situations. But also, even moving beyond the anecdotal evidence, even looking at something like what happened with Glasgow and the way that they reduced violent crime in that city, we should be looking at that as a sort of model of how we can roll out a more holistic program for dealing with knife crime in London. Like It feels like... Anecdotal evidence is something we should definitely be listening to. But even in terms of just the numbers and the kind of empirical evidence, that's a much more successful way of combating violent crime than going back to stop and search, which I, I was under the impression we'd all agreed was a bad idea. I thought it was I thought it was well known that it's because going back to the report I've just been quoting, only seven percent of stop and searches end with an arrest. So that's yeah. that's horrific. You know, we 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 know we're arbitrarily wheeling it out, and yet we've got a call to up it again. What what do you think the re reasons are? Is it politically motivated? Do you think it looks good in the press? I think it's I think it's completely, I think it's completely politically motivated, and also more than just politically motivated. I think that there is, we are, 
experiencing a regression in discourse around race. And I mean, I, I don't want to blame Brexit for all of it, but it feels like Brexit has the the legitimization of racism that came with the vote. And again, I'm not saying all Leave voters are racist, blah, 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 but I do feel like the level of toxic racism that came through the Leave campaign and then having that legitimised by the fact that the Leave campaign won the vote, I think that that has opened the door for some old-fashioned ideas about race and racism. And when you boil it down... With all of these things, so much of it is to do with economics and job opportunities and cuts to youth services. And, if you know, if you have, if you lose, what, I think is it 20,000 police in the since 2010? If you cut, I think it's something like, I mean, you will know these figures better than me, but something like £730 million worth of cuts to youth services, which yeah. disproportionately affect London, it's not a... There's no mystery to it. When you look at the way that the the cuts have happened and where the cuts have happened, it's not a mystery for how these kind of things end up happening and how these kind of things bubble over. And you, you made that point really well on Question Time. I don't want to champion you over Melanie Phillips because <laughs> but you can see which way my persuasion is yeah. going on this, purely based on the fact that I do feel that certain people are so removed from the situations that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They've got they've got such a, a distant perspective. Yeah, I should say that Ash Sarka made, I would say a, a couple of weeks ago on Question Time, Ash Sarka made a lot of these points in a much clearer, more eloquent way than I managed when I was sort of consumed with rage with Melanie Phillips. She she sold a lot of these points, I think, in a much more clear-headed way. But again, just saying the same thing. Which is which is what kind of a lot of this debate is about, is that mm. it, it, it does come out very emotively, and especially both sides, you know, because you've got the... the as much as I want to criticise the Daily Mail kind of esque uh, Peter Hitchens, Melanie Phillips that mm. have the ideas and the solutions, and that's what we should do. But in practice, when you when you're speaking to people that like what we've said that are affected by cuts that have got no longer got any youth services, yeah. surely we it makes perfect sense. Where are they going to go? What is what's what opportunities have we got in austerity for people that are that are potentially struggling as we speak? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's not. It's not rocket science. If you you're going to see you're going to see an increase in criminal activity if you have fewer police on the street. If you have fewer police involved and you have way lower levels of community engagement by the kind of local government, because they and this is no this is not me throwing shade on people who work in local government, because I've worked in local government and I understand how hard a lot of those people work. But if you don't allocate the funds to allow them to do these things, then you are going to see problems like this increase. It's it's just, it's sort of unavoidable. But I think the the thing that's never worked has been more hostile and aggressive policies towards specific communities. And that is all Stop and Search is doing. All Stop and Search is doing is telling you to target disproportionately communities that society perceives to be engaged in violent crime and it doesn't help anyone so do you get the impression that as you said with the cut of the police 
what we can certainly attest to is that all the way you've got fewer numbers, more and more aggressive tactics come in to, to sort of fill those gaps, stop and search being one of them. Do you think that from any experience that you've got, are you getting any kind of feedback, whether it be on Twitter, from what you said on Question Time? Do you get any kind of feedback for what's going on with people that are feeling targeted and vulnerable within this? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the good things that Twitter does do. <laughs> it's, you know, it can be a cesspit at times, but Twitter, all forms of social media certainly create platforms for people from backgrounds that aren't necessarily represented. Um, and, you know, particularly working class and BME backgrounds. And it is important to talk about those two things at the, that are happening at the same time because I think there, for some reason, all of the conversation in the last few years has been about working class people and whenever they say working class, all they mean is white. And there's no consideration that there is a BME working class population. And so there's no... The idea that race and class can't coexist as problems that exist in the same world and that they aren't, there isn't a kind of intersectional concern between those two things. And that that is one of the good things about Twitter is it does expose the idea that the working class is only white people. And it's when we talk about the concerns of the working class, we should only be talking about the concerns of the white working class and it's great. That's one of the great things. And I think one of the key things that hard right-wing politicians have done over the last 25 years just to kind of drive a wedge between the white working class and the BAME working class. And, you know, actually a, a, a low-income family who are white have way more in common with a low-income family that are black than they do with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, ultimately, they have way more, there's way more of a sort of comparison point between those two people. I'm, I'm reading a book by Michael Fuller at the moment, who's the first uh, black chief constable. Yeah. And he, he talks about the historical aspects of knife crime and how it was pretty much taken as read that many people were carrying knives in the in the 80s. And just as now is the big topic of knife crime, and again, we tend to associate with, with black people and black people as opposed to it being a, a general youth violence. Yeah. And this is something that you've spoken about, Akala's spoken about. Is that? Oh, yeah. Akala's amazing on this. He, he's so lucid on these issues. Do you, do you agree with what he says? Do you think that we need to be thinking in terms of race or do we need to talk in terms of economic opportunity and general? It's always about economic opportunity. You know, the when you, I can't believe when people go down the route of ascribing these things to a race of people that they don't see how Victorian they're being in their thinking and how regressive and backward. The idea that, I mean, it's it's an idea that's coded into a lot of elements of British society. This idea that somehow white people are more civilised. Like there is an inherent white supremacy to that idea. And so I can't understand when... Someone like Melanie Phillips goes down the road of saying that there are communities that she doesn't understand that what she's borderline. You know, if you just pull, keep pulling at that thread, you end up in the world of phrenology and like measuring skull shapes. You know, it's so backward in its inherently in its thinking that 
I really thought we'd evolved. I mean, I'm maybe I'm being naive, but I really thought we'd evolved out of thinking that the idea that there are communities that are inherently predisposed to violence. Even as you say that, you should be hearing yourself and going, that sounds so stupid. <laughs> that sounds absolutely ridiculous. The idea that there would be people who are somehow inherently more violent. Where, what logic is that based on? And, 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 and so that's why I'm frustrated with myself in those instances where I become emotional. And the reason I become emotional is because, you know, I have skin in the game. I have brown skin in this game. And so, you know, I feel closer to someone who's a victim of racism than someone who's a perpetrator of racism. And so I, you know, I, it's hard to separate your emotions from that. But that's why I think, that's why I consider the way that I handled that on that evening of failure, because I should in that situation, be able to maintain an even demeanour because actually the facts and the reason are all on, for want of a better term, our side. We have the information and we should be acting on that information. So there's no point in sort of frothing at the mouth and yelling about, um, you know, how stupid Melly Phillips is being. Actually, what you should say in those situations which is what people like Akala and Ash are very good at doing, is to say, let's look at, fine, let's look at the numbers. Let's read the reports. Let's, let's locate this conversation in the realm of fact and reason. And now that we're talking purely in statistical terms, can you honestly sit here and say, one race of people is inherently predisposed to violence without feeling like a bit of a tit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as the words are coming out of your mouth, you should feel embarrassed. <laughs> it do, there does seem a lack of self-awareness on people that don't give yeah, credence to this. Because uh, as you was having a conversation, the, f the first thing that Melanie Phillips could bring up is, have you read the report, as I said at the beginning of this episode? And, and to which you admitted no. But you now have. But yeah. unfortunately, as you said, it, the report doesn't support, support her position. No. Because it is. If you read any of the supporting headlines that went with that report, all of it says institutionalised racism, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's something that we can certainly attest to within this because we've had, we've had Twitter conversations with people where we put out reports and, and said that we really do need to look at the race issues here because the police are seen as a layer of persecution as opposed to yeah. a, a layer of protection. And that creates disharmony within the police force as well because straight away it sounds like to some officers they're being called racist. Yeah, sure. When, of course, they're not. It's just they're following a certain line that goes with that. And the conversation becomes so difficult of saying the policies inherently are and the numbers show them. Yeah. But unfortunately, you're caught up in that trap as well. And I don't know. We haven't got the right answers to that conversation yet. Yeah. Do you think that we're getting any closer or further apart with regards to the police and, and, and race? Do you think that we're... we're <laughs> I think in some ways the whole conversation has gone, has taken a few steps backwards in the last few years. I, I think I don't even think it's just to do with uh, the conversation around law enforcement. I think the conversation about race and racism in this country has taken a few key steps backwards. But at the same time, there are things to cling to as kind of positives. 
one of the best books I've read, one of the best books I've read in my life, certainly one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, is called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Renier Edo Lodge. And I mean, again, you talk about smart statistical analysis that backs up every point that is made about racism. Rennie's book is absolutely extraordinary and has really had a very profound and kind of lasting impact on me. And, I mean, she has a whole chapter about the police and, you know, the way that she talks about it is very lucid. And so, for me, there's a positive thing to cling to. In as far as I see broadly culture going backwards, the idea that a teenager could pick up that book now and read it, and the fact that the, Rennie's book exists is a thing that I cling to as being a positive. Mm. But broadly, broadly, I feel things are going backwards. And I feel very lucky to have grown up when I grew up, because I feel like post-Stephen Lawrence, there, there was a kind of conversation about race and racism in this country. And we were able to... We were gifted terms like institutional racism or systemic racism, because... I think you've hit on something really interesting is that police officers feel attacked by things like that. But actually, for me, the intent of it is the complete opposite. It's completely to divorce ourselves from looking at individuals who are racist because the problem isn't the guy on the street who the, who yells, pack it me out of a car window, you know? That literally happened to me this morning, you know? And the, the fact that that happens isn't... They're not the problem, the problem is the systems, the only way you're going to shift things is by attacking the systems that have racism coded within them. And there's no reason to assume that any of the major institutions of this country, be it civic or political or whatever, don't have racism coded within them because they're institutions that date back hundreds of years. You know, the Metropolitan Police the Conservative Party, the Labour Party. These are institutions that were founded in periods of time where racism was completely culturally acceptable. And so why wouldn't they have, why wouldn't they be riven with racism that's kind of coded into the DNA of these organisations? And to me, it should be a, a positive thing that we seek to root out institutional racism. Do you think we're getting better at having a diversity conversation? Because it's something I've been quite conscious of is that on this podcast we do quite a lot of live panels uh, and we're good for gender diversity because I think we're more balanced over to women than we are men. But, yeah. but I must admit we still fail on, on race, uh, di- uh, on diversity. Yeah. Um, do you think now we are being more conscious of that and saying, no, we need appropriate representation of everybody? I think, yeah, I mean, I think that I feel like just the fact that you all you and I are talking about this is a big step forward. And I feel like people are, are a lot more aware of diversity or representation, whichever word you want to put on it, as being an issue. My concern is the culture at large. I, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, people who listen to this sort of podcast, they're, they're very aware and they're much more aware and they're much more conscious than people were sort of 15, 20 years ago. And they're much more engaged in conversations about race and gender and sexuality. And, but I am concerned 
that outside of the niches that we all sort of operate in, there has been a broader cultural regression. Um, and, you know, we it's just that I, I don't know what's happened, but the, I can't really put my finger on it, but the last couple of years, the conversation about immigrants and immigration and race has, you know, there, there was this... I never thought that we would be in a situation where the Windrush generation were being attacked because that was the one, that was the thing that we were that was the sort of thing we were really proud of in this country we were really proud of the Windrush we were really proud of uh, the Ugandan Asians that were brought here and set up their lives here and th- those were things that we were, we were all really sort of proud of and I think the fact that that you know the Windrush thing was a real kick in the teeth for all of us that thought we were moving forward into a more progressive society. But something has happened. There was a kind of toxic obsession with immigrants and immigration that has bled into people who are British and becomes, you know, when people say we you should be able to have a conversation about immigration without calling people racist, the problem is that I have never seen a conversation about immigration that hasn't turned racist you know i the the you know when theresa may was in charge of the home office the obsession with immigration the go home vans all of that stuff which you know ostensibly they're saying is just about new immigrants it's then no surprise that that results in you sending people from the windrush do you think that the bottom line of finances and austerity, do you think that plays a part? Because there's certainly something I can attest to in another uh, sector that I'm very passionate about, which is disability. Yeah. The, dis- the disabled oh, community. The disability, been... I mean, what's happened there is, I mean, I don't think this is the right term, but I'm so, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading Francis Ryan's book, yes, yes, which, yes. you know, which I think will be, be a really important document about where disability rights are in terms of post-austerity Britain. Um, but, yeah, I think you I think you have to look at it in historic terms and just say the pattern is financial crisis, attack on minorities. You know, 29, Wall Street crash, 39, start of the Second World War. And the Second World War and the Nazi program was an attack on Jewish people, immigrants, traveller community, the disabled, LGBTQ, and those exact same communities are under attack in the same way now. And there's a regression of women's rights. You know, I was seeing something today about a Texan senator proposing the death penalty for women who have abortions, you know, it's it's there's something about the way we react to the fallout of a financial crisis that causes us to wind the clock back twenty or thirty years. And you made that point on Question Time when you, when you brought up what's going on in Boston, the fact that there's a lot more emphasis on creating economic opportunities over there and I'm really yeah. pleased you brought that up because I've got colleagues out in Boston uh, and with drug law reform. Because in Massachusetts, uh, cannabis is now legal. Yeah. 
they're the first ones to properly take on what's called social equity. So to make sure that people that have been harmed by the drug war, that predominantly, again, people with ethnic minority backgrounds, they've got an inroad to having a stake in the industry so they can get some payback out of it. And they're the first ones to really take that on. So the fact you brought up Boston was, was really interesting to me. Do you think we do need to be thinking in terms of that, in terms of, uh, again, in drug wars at stakes, how we can repatch things up, how we can make amends along the, on the route? Yeah, I think that's really important because I think that that's how you, that's how you reverse the cycles of violence that exist within communities that are massively affected by drugs. And I think that there is something suspect in the way that some of the states in America have handled the legalization of marijuana and i think that there's been a a sort of capital transfer from that from one community to another and at least when it was illegal some people from minority backgrounds were making money off the back of it whereas the in a lot of the states the legalization has resulted in the drug trade being whitewashed and i that is one of the positive things that massachusetts is sort of promoting I went on a real journey with legalization, I think. God, because when I was I, I've never really I've never really been a drugs person. Um which is probably you can tell from the phrase my drugs person. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is the quote. Yeah. <laughs> I I sort of was always suspicious of legalization because I when I was growing up I, in a, in a couple of specific instances, saw the negative fallout that happens when people become addicted to cannabis. And I, I, I find it difficult sometimes to swallow the argument that cannabis is ultimately harmless. When people say, well, what about alcohol? You go, yeah, alcohol fucking destroys people's <laughs> lives. We, you know, it's not a good thing to say this is just like alcohol. And then, so I was always on the fence about, because I think instinctively, politically, I lean towards the groups of people that favour legalisation. But I would say in my bones, there was a part of me that was like, no, we shouldn't add another. And then I went to, and then there's, you know, Ava DuVernay's 13th documentary and the the way that the drug enforcement policies and the war on drugs was essentially used to execute a race war. So that, then that is one huge thing that completely turned my perspective on it. And then the other thing was, and there's no way to explain this without sounding like, gap year asshole <laughs> but I'd made a travel show a couple of years ago with my friend Joel Domit and we went and it was all about Joel um, loving uh, physical exercise and how he you know, you know he wants to go and live with people who live in a really physical way and spend time with them to see how he holds up to, you know because he, he does this thing called CrossFit which is sort of prison workouts for people from a socioeconomic background who are unlikely to ever go to jail. And so he, it was like he, his whole thing was like, how, what is real? And so we went to this Mexican uh, village to live with the Tarahumara, who are these uh, indigenous Mexican ultra runners. I mean, they do 20 mile uh, ultra marathons without even thinking about it. You know, these guys run 25, 30 miles without thinking about it. Like in, they, they literally run, the, run it in their jeans. I've seen them do it. It's it, phenomenal. But we were in this place called Irike, which had become a tourist hotspot um, because a guy called Christopher McDougall wrote a book called Born to Run about the tribe and about ultra running and about how because uh, they run with these they run with shoes that are just thin tires. They they literally cut out tires, and so it none of them have uh, heel or knee problems. 
because they because they have no soul on their shoes. They run the way that your body is built to run. And actually, because we have all of the we have really thick soles, we run in a way that impacts our joints very poorly. And so he wrote all about these guys and they became a kind of tourist hotspot. And then all the tourism dried after Chapo was busted. And because there was a turf war across the town. And if you walk around the town, there are still bullet holes in buildings from when it all went crazy. And I assumed that it was cocaine and it wasn't. It was all weed. And, you know, so many people died. A, a town's entire economy was destroyed and all over something that, you know, my friends would casually offer me at a party. And it that really chain that plus you know really becoming cognizant of particularly in america what the war on drugs really means completely changed my policy on legalization ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It completely changed my worldview. That's encouraging to hear because that's, that's what we want. We want people to understand the full picture and not just on terms of harm because we always say that, that drugs should be nuanced and regulated because mm. of the harms not because they're safe yeah completely and, and and that what you just said it's about the the overlapping issues and that's where again bringing it back to our domestic issue is that it's the drug war that has an issue on stop and search because mm. it's cannabis that people will stop for because of suspicion that's then used as a as a crutch to go right we're now going to search you for a knife because we've got the suspicion that the cannabis smell yeah. So again, you're you're catching the low hanging fruit at all times in law enforcement at the moment because of the stop and search policies, and and the societal harms that come with our drug laws are just. I think people are starting to grasp it now, as you just said. Yeah. But it takes a conversation, which is why we're always so grateful for people like you, because you can contextualise it better than what we can. Because I mean, one of the things, obviously, you're a comedian, and the Mash Report is that satire is a massive tool where it helps yeah, out. Yeah, sure, yeah. How much um, faith do you put in 
into satire? I don't know. I have a really mixed feelings about it because I sometimes feel like all we do is preach to the converted and we're not really engaged in changing people's minds. But at the same time, so I don't really know why I do this, <laughs> but I I feel at all times like we have to, I, I feel a real burning obligation that everything we do is funny because I think people can go and get information in other places and we are a comedy show ultimately. But I also feel, I think probably, you know, probably because you, I kind of came, the people I grew up really admiring, I, I really loved Chris Rock's stand-up and I really loved Jon Stewart's tenure as head of The Daily Show. I loved John Oliver, you know. I, uh, and the, the one thing that Chris Rock, Jon Stewart had in common was that there was always a big punchline. Like, they were always really funny, but they meant every word of it. And it was always really well-informed. And I loved I loved watching, you know, like a Chris Rock routine that was really funny and made a real point about, you know, whatever it is. He, 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 the number of times I find myself in conversation referring back to something that he said in his stand-up is incredible. You know, he he has this, he has a really great routine about how he's always suspicious of patriotism as an African-American because it always turns into racism in his experience. And he, you know, he says that train's never late. He says, he, I always listen carefully because when somebody starts saying, I love my country, I hate immigrants, I know that all I'm going to hear is black people and Jews are next. Like, because, and he's, it's like the phrase, that train's never late. I use that conversationally, <laughs> you know, when you talk about how anti-immigrant sentiment evolves almost instantly into racism. That train's never late. Like, I, well, we, we were just talking about it today, and I can't sum it up any better in terms of anti-immigration sentiment morphing into racism more than the, that train is never late routine by Chris Rock. And so I always really liked, just really love that comedy. I really love the idea of something that is you know, has a real point of view and is substantiated but still really makes you laugh. And I, that's the... I, I You know, with the, with live shows, it's great because you really feel the audience. You feel you're connecting with the audience in some way. And with the TV show, we just hope that we're having the same effect. With the live show, sometimes you talk, you know, I did a big chunk about racial profiling and knife crime and you can feel discomfort in some of the audience... And you know that that I I have this compunction to sort of push through that discomfort um, because I don't know. They, they, sometimes I think that there are just if you if you have a platform right now, whatever it is, you have a responsibility to use that platform to some extent. I mean, if I was just standing there doing an hour of jokes that had no political motivation, it'd be fine. You don't, if you do an hour of jokes that are just funny, what's better than that? Especially right now when everything's so depressing. What, what do you want? What could be more refreshing than go and watch Tim Vine or Milton Jones? Like, what could be more relaxing than that? But if you take, if you start down the road of doing stuff like this, then you have to follow it through. That's what I always feel. And, I, you know, I get a lot of kudos for it. You know, I get a lot of praise for 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bafflingly overpraised for the work that I do. So if you get kudos and you get acclaim and you get praise for it, you have to follow that through by doing the reading. And at times, if you start down the road of uncomfortable conversations, then you have to, then you have an obligation, I think, to follow those roads, follow those through to their conclusions. Is there, is there any issue that that you are reticent on taking on? Do you think that there are ones that you're going to want to in the future, but kind of pull back a little bit now, or is, or is everything on the table? You can address it. I think everything's on. I don't think I've. I mean, every, I think everything's on the table. I think you definitely think very carefully about all of the stuff that you say and try and make sure that you stand by all of it. And it's. Um, it sometimes comedians talk about the Emily Maitlis test because Emily Maitlis on two occasions as Newsnight presenter has had to out of context read horrific jokes by comedians. <laughs> and she had to do it once with Frankie Boyle and once with Dapper Laughs. And so my friend Tom Neenan, who's a brilliant comedy writer and comedy performer, always says you have to try and imagine yourself being sat across from Emily Maitlis <laughs> when she reads your joke out and you have to think, do I still stand by that? And yeah, I think like I'm happy to stand by everything that I said in my last tour show. And, you know, there was a chunk about me having, you know, being really fed up of being racially profiled at airports. And then if you're going to talk about that, you then have to also acknowledge that it's only, you know, in a sense, as a sort of, you know, whatever it is, university educated man of Asian background, I'm not exposed to the same level of racial profiling that, forget moving into a different economic bracket, my friends who are black, who come from exactly the same background as me, are exposed to a completely different level of racial profiling. So if you're going to do that routine, you have a responsibility to also acknowledge the fact that you, in one sense, have a privilege that they don't have. And so I think it's it's not necessarily, it's the responsibility of once you go down that road or once you set yourself up as any kind of authority or if you do a show like The Mash Report, which sets its stall out as being a show about the news, you have a responsibility to confront the issues. And regardless of how uncomfortable they may make you, you have a responsibility to do the reading and substantiate your point of view. So I'm going to start to wrap up now because you, you've, you've rushed over in a cab in rush hour traffic to get to us. <laughs> so you've, you've gone above and beyond the call of duty to get here, so I can't thank you enough. And you're just saying about it, you don't feel like you're entitled to some of the praise you get. But we we always praise people like yourself that are comedians and lend your, your weight and your voice to these issues because I can guarantee you they really help. They massively do. It's all well and good us doing what we do. But without you and and kind of the for for a crew term the marketing that you bring with it the yeah. exposure you do, we couldn't do it without you. So we can't thank you enough for for what you're doing in this. So just to kind of really put you on the spot, where do you think we're going? Do you think that the the stop and search, the race disparity, uh, disharmony in society? Do you think it's going to get better? Do you think it's going to get worse? I worry that it's going to get worse before it gets better, um, because I think whatever. Uh, whatever shakes down with Brexit, there is going to be a period of unrest. Because I think if it doesn't happen, there will be a sort of backlash against that not happening. If it does happen, I can't conceive of a way that it's not going to be a disaster. And I think there's going to be a backlash in the short term for that, because I don't see a situation where Brexit goes badly 
and the people responsible, i.e. the people who campaigned for it and agitated for it, hold their hands up and say, we made mistakes with the figures. So that blame will again just disperse itself. And when blame like that is dispersed, it tends to disperse itself onto minority communities. Um, and I think there will be more kind of toxic rhetoric. But, but there is a younger generation coming through and hopefully, you know, hopefully people my age who, you know, I'm now in my early 30s, so I'm knocking on the door of a generation that is going to be in power and in charge and in positions of authority. You know, I think you always have to view generations as they get their chance when they're in their 40s because that's when, you know, by that point, you kind of take control of government and business leaders and all, you know, legal change. And I'm hoping that we don't make a mess of it. And I really feel like there is a lot of reasons to be positive because it does feel like there is a groundswell of people who are looking for a more progressive, reason-based approach to the problems that we are facing as a society right now. And But I, I have a terrible feeling it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I still have to believe that it's going to get better. I think that's, that's that's a really nice optimistic way to put it, I think, because it is really easy to frame everything in doom and gloom at the moment because there's a lot of problems out yeah. there. 16-year-olds um, walked out of school to protest climate... You know, school children walked out of school to protest climate change. That's got to be a positive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that level of engagement, you know, yeah. trying to coax the next level up, which I think... Like you said, you know, the, it is generational and the next generation is there. To, and especially within the issues we've just been speaking about, they are the ones that will be most affected. You know, yeah. we're, we're seeing headlines every day about knife crime and things like that. And again, do you think that aspect, do you think we're going to have attainable solutions to that? I, I mean, I hope so. And I hope that there are, I hope that we're dealing with the sort of dying embers of regressive thinking in regards to issues around violent crime. Um, I hope that what we're seeing is the kind of, you know, dying spasm of a generation of people who are seeking, you know, because ultimately a race solution is, racism is easy. That's the thing, you know. It's easier to just say, oh, they must be, they must be born that, they must be inherently violent. Or they, you know, they must be, they must just be different from us. And I think that's why it always is brought to the fore in terms of economic crisis, because when it's very easy during times of prosperity to trumpet equality, but when things turn and there are people looking actively for scapegoats, the easiest thing to do is just say, the person to blame is the person who is most visibly different from you. So it must be their fault. And... I hope that we are moving into a situation where people embrace more complex solutions to these problems rather than just doing the first thing, which is just to go, he looks different, it must be his fault. Well, Nish, I can't thank you enough for lending your voice to this. So thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. Not at all. Thanks for having me. I think that's got to be one of my favourites. It was such an easy one to edit as well because he was just so fluent on the subjects. Thank you so much, Nish. It means a great deal. And hopefully, we'll keep addressing this subject like we need to. As I said, make sure you check out Release Drugs, make sure you check out Stopwatch UK, and there's going to be more to come on that. 
Right, well, I've done my uh, social media shout-outs at the start of this episode, but I need to do my thank yous, don't I? So make sure you listen to all the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, a special shout-out to Dr Susie Gage on Say Why to Drugs. Um, she put out a an amazing big panel discussion episode, this current episode. So thank you so much, Susie, for carrying on your brilliant work. Make sure you check out all the organisations and links that we mentioned in this show. And, of course, thank you to Scribius Pit for having us on your network. Thank you to John Cross, the Elite UK social media worker. Thank you to John Harris, the brilliant Distraction Pieces Network social media. Basically, the Distraction Pieces Network is just a giant fan club of John Harris. So thank you, John. Waving the flag for the Dream Factory. And thank you so much to Nikki and Tristan, the producers. And my name is Ad for all the artwork he does. And make sure you go and follow Pod Bible as well on all the social media channels because my name is Ed is doing a lot of work with Pod Bible and also so am I. I'm I'm so grateful for that. Right, on that rambly note, I'm gonna sign off. I'm gonna start work on the next episode, which is already queued up. And if you if you want to be a bit spoiler alert, it was actually kind of mentioned within this last episode with Nish, who's gonna be on the on the next episode. Um, so I'll let you ponder who that is. Right. Off we go then. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where to ride southern straight? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.